about our need to be intentional. And I want to continue that thought. If you have your Bibles, turn to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 16. And I'm going to begin reading in verse number 5. Now I will come to you when I pass through Macedonia, for I am passing through Macedonia. And it may be that I will remain or even spend the winter with you, that you may send me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not wish to see you now on the way, but I hope to stay a while with you, if the Lord permits. But I will tarry in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a great and effective door has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. We need, God's people need to evangelize on purpose. As I mentioned, I started last week, just some thoughts that I will continue for a few weeks on being intentional, doing it, doing church, being God's people on purpose. We talked last week about our need to exist on purpose that we need to be his people, his church, and his people have a mission or a purpose. We're not going to make an impact in this world, in this culture, that is continually drifting further and further away from anything that even remotely resembles godliness by just waiting for it to happen. We need to have a reason and a plan after all, Jesus, when he came to earth, didn't just come to hang out. He came with a mission and a purpose. Now, we want to encourage one another. We want to believe that all things are possible. As I was sharing with a brother last week, we want to shoot for it all. We want to shoot for the stars. If we shoot for nothing, more often than not, we'll reach it. But we want to go for as much as God can use you and I, his people, to be an impact in the world today. A scripture we read last week, when Jesus was born, it was clear there was a purpose. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, and, he shall, and she shall bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. For he shall save his people from their sins. The reason Jesus came for you and me, was because we needed a savior. That was his purpose. That was his intent. You and I were his focus. The main reason he came needs to be the main reason we're here as well. To lead people to a healthy, growing relationship with the Lord Jesus. This is not about coming to a place where we can feel good. Or a feeling where we belong or feeling loved, yet there's nothing wrong with any of those things. But while it's awesome to feel good and awesome to feel that you're in a place where you belong and awesome to feel loved, I contend there's nothing that compares to feeling saved. Our focus is the lost. Two years ago, 
when I came to St. James to be the pastor of this church, I wrote a letter to every pastor in St. James. In the first couple of sentences, I basically said, hi, I'm here. And I wanted to let them know if there was anything we could do collectively together, I would be interested in hearing about it. But I also made it clear in that letter to every pastor of a church in St. James that my focus was I didn't want any of the people who attended their churches to attend this one. My focus was not people who were already attending church. My focus was people who were staying home on Sundays. I wanted to focus on them. Because when something is your purpose, when something is your focus, it will shape everything that you do. Not only what you do, but how you do it. I want you to say something with me. Our purpose is to evangelize the lost. We're going to try that one more time. Our purpose is to evangelize the lost. In this passage, Paul had been on two previous missionary trips that took him over eight years. He's traveling from city to city, and that's not an easy thing to do, especially in that time. He often faced opposition. He often was beaten or stoned and left for dead. But he faced all of this for one purpose, to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with the world he knew. And now here he is as he's writing this letter to the church at Corinth on his third missionary journey, and he at, at the moment is in, emphasis, um, is in Ephesus. He shares with them, he has this huge, tremendous desire. He wants to come be with them. He wants to return. But the work where he is isn't done. The work where he is is calling him, and it's providing him with an opportunity. And he says to them, he plans to stay there a short while, which underscores Paul's complete inability to tell time because he wound up staying there three years. Now, the reason Paul stayed so long, he says, because God had provided an open door. So I want to talk about open doors today. It was an open door of opportunity. Ephesus if we look at the, that city historically, was not a town most Christians would want to settle in. It was a bit on the wild side. It was a happening place if you were three things, young, single, and heathen. It was the financial and commercial center of that region. A lot of money passed through for various commercial reasons in Ephesus. It also had, at that time, one of, the, one of the known seven wonders of that world, which was a temple raised to a goddess called Diana. And she was the goddess of fertility. I'm not going to go into details. I'll let your imaginations run with how you worship a goddess of fertility. Immorality abounded in Ephesus. The people believed in magic. They were extremely superstitious. This was, by all accounts, by any measure, a wicked city. 
Now, in the course of my life, whether it be in ministry or in my secular life, I've always known there are two kinds of people. There are those who see a problem in every opportunity. And then there are those who see an opportunity in every problem. I want us to be a people who are the second. Who when we see a problem, we see an opportunity. Paul looked at this city and he saw terrible sin. He saw wickedness unlike he had seen before. But what it presented to him, that means it was an open door. When people's lives around us are falling apart, it's not our signal to create distance. That's an open door for you and I to let them know there's someone who can walk into their lives and begin to put it back together. When our culture turns away and keeps going further and further away from anything that's godly, that's an open door for you and I to stand firm and say, hey, wait a minute. We still believe in Jesus. When being a heathen or being sinful or being ungodly has become politically correct, that's not a time for God's people to run in fear or to become anxious or to become scared. It's a time to see the opportunity that we have to show God's power to reign even in an ungodly culture. Paul looked at his sin city and saw an opportunity for thousands of people to receive the gospel. Many people there needed to hear about Jesus. I think we can relate. Many people needed to hear about forgiveness. I think we can relate. Many people needed to understand that no matter what life's ills you're experiencing, that there's an almighty God who provides healing for everything. I think we can relate. And Paul walked into a city in Ephesus and saw a people who, bottom line, needed to be set free. Church, I think we can relate. He saw lives that needed to be changed. And this would only happen on purpose. He has a, you know what? I'm going to turn my city upside down mindset. So what do you see? What do we see? What do God's people see when we see sin today in our world? When we see others turning away from God's ways? when we see more people in corner bars than in corner churches, when society attempts to redefine anything that's remotely godly, to redefine marriage, to redefine what it means to be a man or a woman, to redefine anything, what do we see? We can either see a bunch of creepy people that we would rather not associate with Or we can see a door that's being opened by God for us to walk in and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and love them the way Jesus does. John chapter 4 verse 35 says, Do you not say, there is still four months and even comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. A sinful world is a world ready for Jesus. A sinful world, an ungodly world, is a world that needs his 
message. Now, I would think the church by now would have learned that certain methods work and certain methods just don't work. I don't know. I've come to realize, and from my own experience, that beating people over the head with a Bible doesn't work. Especially if the Bible's hardcover. Walking up to someone and calling them a filthy, rotten, heathen, pagan, sinner you doesn't work. Coming into someone's presence because you and I are just so angelic and anointed and letting them know how privileged they are to have you in their presence and that you've even taken the time to speak to them doesn't work. What also doesn't work is a church that is living an inconsistent life in front of ungodly people. Now, I want to be clear. I believe in the Bible. We need to make it clear to all of creation that God hates sin. But church, we also need to make it abundantly clear, God hates sin. God loves sinners. And we are all daily surrounded by opportunities to be his light and to be his witnesses. We just need to look for them. So the first door that Paul saw was a door of opportunity. The next door he saw was a door of obligation. Not only did Paul see an open door in Ephesus, he said, you know what, I got to walk through it. Verse 9 says, not just that there's an open door in Ephesus, it's a door opened to me. It's a door I have to walk through. He didn't comment it was a door open to Timothy or a door open to Barnabas or a door open to anybody else. He answered like the prophet Isaiah answered when he saw the Lord high and lifted up, Lord, send me. He was in a place that needed the gospel desperately. And the door was open to him. We all need to see that the ministry of the church, that the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ is not just something for people who get called pastor. It's for someone, for anyone who is called saved. We share him in our words. We share him in our actions. We share him with the choices we make. We share him in our relationships the ones we engage, and the ones we refrain from. Now, this whole sharing thing can actually scare some people to death. You mean like share with people? Yeah, people. Well, I'm going to leave that for someone who has the gift of evangelism. Now, yes, there are people that, the God, that our God has given a special gift of evangelism. But this isn't about the gift of evangelism. This is simply about letting what Jesus put inside you come on out so everybody can see it. This is not about the gift of evangelism. This is about influence. Church, without Jesus, people are lost. 
Do you really believe that? Do we believe that without Jesus, they are eternally lost? This is not about being annoying. I'm the first person who doesn't want anybody annoying hanging around me. This is about being willing to share. Anyone who's going to look at my life and say, you've got so many wonderful things in your life, is going to hear about Jesus. Because that's why I have all the wonderful things in my life. Anyone who's going to look at my life and my marriage and say, that's great, you've been married for so long, is going to hear about Jesus. Because it's only through his love and his power that we've been together now this month. It'll be 38 years. It's about letting everyone know that Jesus is the reason for every blessing, every joy, every wonderful day in my life. And he's the reason why not only for every joy, but I've gotten through every cloudy day. We share. And that sharing doesn't just happen. We need to let it happen on purpose. Lord, help me to see open doors and then walk through them. Well, I'm not sure I want to share Jesus. It might offend them. Okay, let me remove the doubt. It will offend them. Go ahead. It seems clear to me that the world we live in has absolutely no concern about offending us and we're not doing it to cause a, some type of debate or an argument. You've learned that about me already. I am not into debating. But if you're going to point out something in my life or try to point out something in general, I'm going to point out that Jesus is Lord. And I'm going to take that encounter as an open door. We have open doors every day. Paul was given an open, a door of opportunity. And then he saw a door of obligation. I have to talk about Jesus. I shared the story many years ago when we worked with a church in the city. And I was asked to open in prayer at a community event. And they wanted me to open in prayer as long as I didn't pray in Jesus' name. That was an opportunity for me to completely ignore the instructions I was given. Because if it's not in Jesus' name, it's not prayer. If it's not in Jesus' name, it's just, it really is just talking to four walls. Or we were outdoors, so it was just talking to the wind. wonder why they never had me back. Maybe one day I'll find out. Because when that prayer was done, I ended it in Jesus' name. Hmm. They said, thank you. Never heard from them ever again. None. It's just good sermon material for me. Paul saw a door of opportunity. Paul saw a door of obligation. Paul also saw a door of opposition. At the end of verse 9, Paul says, There are many 
adversaries. There will always be people who oppose the gospel. Always. When I hear people say, I want to live in a community, or I want to live in a nation, or I want to live in a world where it's all Christian, that's not the planet God put you and me on. He put you and me on a planet where there is always going to be opposition to the gospel. In Ephesus, there was this silversmith called Demetrius. And he had a wonderful business going. He made idols. He made them of the goddess Diana. So whenever anyone would come into Ephesus to worship the goddess, they would pick up an idol. It was a booming business until this crackpot Paul comes in and he starts messing things up. People are getting converted to Christianity and they stop worshiping Diana. Now, when they were worshiping Diana, it was good for business. Now that they're Christians, that was bad for business. So needless to say, Demetrius didn't like Paul. He gets a community board, essentially, to bring him up on charges. He's a troublemaker. He's creating all kinds of upheaval in the community. He's not one of us. People will oppose you. They will label you. They will lump you with other people. They will call you a fanatic. Let them. Call me whatever you want, but you're not going to call me someone who denies the power of Jesus in my life. And this one is always interesting to me. They will call you closed-minded. Hmm. First of all, since when is being right closed-minded? And I serve Jesus, so I'm right. But let's go on a cultural scale, closed-minded. So we want to talk about competing belief systems. You want to talk about yours, I'll talk about Christianity. So you talk about yours. And then I talk about Jesus. Well, we don't want to talk about Jesus. I thought you were open-minded. The fact that the world seems to be in a place where they are more than willing to talk about every belief system in this world except the one that glorifies the one true God and his son, Jesus Christ, to me, is not, is not open-minded. Doesn't deter us. And you know why? Because there are too many lost people out there. Too many blind people out there. Too many hurting people out there. This church belongs to Jesus. It's about his purpose and his needs, not ours. First Peter chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. But sanctify the Lord in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a, for a reason, for the hope that is in you, with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile you, your, conduct, your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. Church, we need to always be ready. You come to me and say, it's a wonderful day outside. I'm going to say, thank God. 
We had a really good time at a family gathering. Isn't God good? Why do you got to keep bringing God into it? Because God is in everything. I'm not continuing to bring God into it. I'm just acknowledging the reality of the situation that is our existence. Peter said, always be ready to see yourself, truly see yourself as an instrument for the master to play, as a vessel for him to pour into and then pour out to others. And there's an interesting word there. Always be ready when anyone asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. Now, when your life is going well and everything is just clicking, everything is wonderful with your job, everything is wonderful with your family, everything is wonderful in your community, you're at some family gathering or some public event and everyone knows everything is going well in your life. No one's going to ask you, why are you hopeful? Because everything is going great. The majority of the times when someone asks you why you have so much hope is because anyone looking on would think you shouldn't have any. Because life isn't always sunshine. Because life isn't always clear days. But be ready to let them know that even when loved ones are ill, that even when life in the family is dysfunctional, I know none of your families are dysfunctional. We're talking about other families right now. (laughs) That even when there's real pain being experienced day by day, I still have hope, and his name is Jesus. I still have hope because I serve a living God who is able to heal anything. Why do you have so much hope? Observation would clearly dictate You should be the most miserable person with what you're going through. And you haven't met my Jesus then. You haven't met my Jesus. I don't know when it's going to happen, but there's something stirring in me that I'm putting together a series of messages on that wonderful, upbeat book of Job. What an upbeat book that is, huh? At least the first six verses are, anyway. The book opens with Job being presented as he's blameless, a righteous man. Then it goes into that God's calling a meeting in heaven, and when the devil shows up, the first thing God says to the devil, have you noticed, Job? He's got it going on. He really has it happening. He's awesome. I've already made my prayers clear to the Lord. Don't brag on me. I really don't want there to be some future book of Hiram. I just. But what has stirred me about the opening interaction in Job is something the devil says. When he says to the Lord, does Job serve you for nothing? Why does he serve you 
and then the story unfolds that most of us know. But does he serve you for nothing? Or is it because you've blessed him? Is it because you've put a hedge of protection around him? Is it because he's so favored throughout all the land that if you took all of that away, would he still serve you? That has paused me because our relationship with Jesus needs to be about our relationship with Jesus not just the blessings he bestows upon us. It's going to be a great sermon series, trust me. Well, the first sermon I've just kind of preached. But why do we have this hope? Why do we walk with our head high when everyone seems to be in anxiety? Why do we still grieve when we lose a loved one? or when the doctor's report is not what we were praying for, or things don't happen the way we'd like them to, yet there's a grieving in us, but it's not like the world, because we have a hope. The Bible is clear. We grieve, but not like those who have no hope. No matter what we go through, no matter what we experience, no matter what we lose, no matter what happens to those so close to us. We have a hope that there is a God in heaven and his name is Jesus. And because of that, I have hope. And because of that, I can tell other people and I can do that on purpose. Colossians, Colossians chapter four, verse three. Meanwhile, praying also for us that God would open to us a door for the world to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in chains. Church, I got to talk about Jesus. I got to live for him. I belong to him. We need to evangelize on purpose. We're going to celebrate Holy Communion today because we're going to commemorate something the Lord did for you and me, and he did it on purpose.